We are in Matthew 24 and 25 today. We're ending our series on, uh, on Since Heaven is Real. And, and if you haven't caught that whole series and you want to catch up on it, we've got the sermons archived online. Um, I, I need to let you know next Sunday, we're beginning a new series of, on the life of John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with this guy's life, spectacular, uh, very, very intense human being. If there was somebody I could bring back to life, obviously it would be Jesus, but uh, I mean, he came back to life, but if we bring him back to earth today, if I could bring somebody back to earth right now and be with us, obviously Jesus would be number one, but John the Baptist would probably be in my top five. He, he's somebody we need, his, his ministry, his spirit, and he, basically we need a kick in the rear end and he'd be just the guy to give it to us. Um, second thing I need to tell you before we get into the word, that's next Sunday. This week, if you're a member of First Baptist, in other words, you've gone through the process of joining us through uh, baptism or joining by letter or statement, then you're going to get an email from me this week with a questionnaire attached. Please open it and please take the questionnaire. It's going to ask you questions about how you're connecting with God, your, your study of his word, your prayer life how you feel about, you know, your times of corporate worship. It's going to ask you questions about your, your growth in certain qualities of the Christian faith. Love, joy, peace, patience, all the fruit of the Spirit, and other things like humility and generosity. And it's going to ask you about reaching others in the Lord's name, uh, your relationships with other people, and how, you're, how you feel you're doing in terms of influencing people toward the Lord. Those three categories. The purpose of this is, and we design this ourselves, we just want to know how our church people are doing. We want to know what we should be doing to help you grow. So if you will take that, it's anonymous. I won't know, none of us will know who answers what. But at the end, it'll tell us, oh, okay, our people need help in these areas. So be as honest as you can. Make sure you take the, take the questionnaire. If you don't take it online, we'll have some available here at church for the next three weeks. But I hope you'll help us out with that. All right? So Matthew 24 and 25, when I was... About 10 or 11 years old, I had a Sunday school teacher, really great guy, really made an impact on my life. But at one point, he was also really, really big into reading and studying biblical prophecy. And at one point, he gave me a copy of a book by a guy named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody here familiar with this book? Okay, some of you are. Some of you are my age or older, right? Because this book was written in the early 70s. I was, you know, I was 10 or 11 when he gave me the book. Um, and it, I'll be honest, it scared the snot out of me. Um, so here's the, here's the gist of the late great planet Earth. Uh, Lindsay says, again, he's writing in, you know, 71 or 72. He says, okay, there's going to be a confederation of European nations. They're actually going to form one nation, a, a revived Roman empire, and the new Caesar will be the Antichrist. And then Russia is going to invade Israel, and that's going to precipitate a, a series of events that will lead up to Armageddon and the end of the world as we know it. And he said, by the way, since the year 1988, which remember was in the future back then, the year 1988 is 40 years after the establishment of the modern day nation of Israel. That's when it's going to happen. It's going to happen in the year 1988. Now, quick question. What year is it now? Anybody? Okay. Yeah. 2021. Right. Yeah. It's not a trick question. Yeah. 1988's been and gone a long time ago. None of that stuff happened. And I'm not just here to pick on Hal Lindsey. You know, that, that book sold that was one of the best-selling books of the 1970s, period. Not all categories combined. They even made a movie version out of it, narrated by Orson Welles. So it's a big deal. A lot of people bought this book. 
and got excited about it, and then it didn't happen. And Hal Lindsey, not just to pick on him, because he's part of a long tradition. So in 18, here's just a few stories. 1844, Baptist preacher, upstate New York, named William Miller. He's reading in Daniel 8, and he says, you know, I think if I do the math here, what Daniel's talking about says that we're going to see the return of Christ and the end of the world this year. It's going to happen. In fact, by March of this year, it's going to happen. And he sent out newsletters. He sent out publications. He gained a nationwide following. March of 1844 came and went. I probably don't need to tell you, Jesus did not return then. And then he came back and said, okay, I have miscalculated. Let me, let me do some new math. And I came up with, now I know for sure it's happening, not just a, a general range. I know the exact day. It's going to be October 22nd, 1844. Well, you need to know that the, peop, the followers of William Miller who helped start their own denomination sometime after this, forever, they referred to October 22nd, 1844 as the great disappointment. Third story. Johann Stoffler, Catholic priest, mathematician, scholar, 1499. He's doing some study of the stars. He notices that all the planets are gonna come into alignment. I mean, not all the planets, but 20 of them which is a remarkable event. In, eight, in 25 years from this date, so 1524, 20 planets will be in alignment and it will be under the astrological sign of Pisces, which is the fish, which he then deduced meant that the world would be destroyed in a worldwide flood in 1524. Apparently the poor guy had never seen a rainbow, didn't know about that promise, right? And people took him extremely seriously. There was, there was a, a German nobleman, I am not making this name up. His name was Count von Igelheim. I, I claim it, if I ever become a German nobleman, that's my name, okay? Count von Igelheim actually built an ark for himself and his friends and family. It was three stories tall. And he invited them to board the ark. On the day they boarded the ark, a, a, a huge crowd gathered to watch and then it started to rain and there was panic and a riot broke out. And, and, and I know we're laughing, but they actually stormed the ark, dragged the count off and stoned him to death. So people took this very seriously. Uh, go all the way back to the second century AD, just you know, less than two centuries since the time of Christ. Montanus was a Christian leader who believed that he was receiving revelations from God that were equal to, if not superior to the scriptures. Quick pro tip, anybody ever tells you that I've, I'm gaining re revelation that's equal to or superior to the scriptures, stop listening right then. But he gained a following. He believed that the new Jerusalem was coming down out of heaven in his lifetime and it was gonna be, it was gonna land in the middle of a plain in Turkey. And so they built sort of a commune in that area waiting so they could be the first residents of the new Jerusalem. It did not happen, right? Now, my favorite of all these stories is about the prophetic chicken of Leeds. Not making this up. I promise you can look it up. There was 1500s. There was a hen in the English city of Leeds that was dropping eggs that had prophetic messages on them. People came from miles around. It was known all over England. I mean, thousands of people came to see this amazing chicken. And the thing is, they, see, they, they would see the eggs come out and the writing was already on them. Oh my goodness, what is going on? Well, someone finally figured out what was going on. The woman who owned the chicken was using acid to write messages on the eggs and then sticking them up the chicken. Poor chicken. 
Some of you, that's all you're gonna think about the rest of the day. But I beg of you, I beg of you, hear me now. It is so hard for Christians to talk responsibly and biblically about the return of Christ and the end times. We make one of two mistakes. Either we get sucked into things like I just talked about, the authors, the preachers. And by the way, if you're thinking about getting into church ministry, there's not a lot of money in it. But if you, if you want to make it, make you rich, I, I got a tip for you. Watch the news and then write a book about how all these things in the news correspond to biblical prophecy. People will lap that stuff up. That is a great way to draw a crowd. That's a great way to move books. That's a great way to get rich. And lots of people have done it and continue to do it. And there are a lot of us, and some of these are the godliest, most sincere and intelligent people I know, and yet they buy into this stuff, hook, line, and sinker. And you know what? None of these people have been right once. Not once. And so the, other, the rest of us sit over here and we look at those people and we say, okay, I don't want to be like that. And so we just don't talk about the return of Jesus at all. And that's at least as big a mistake because let's face it, if Jesus is coming back, and he is, if, it's coming, if, he's, happy, if he's coming at a time when we don't expect him and it could be today, and that's also true, then shouldn't we be talking about that? I mean, shouldn't you hear sermons about that on a regular basis? Shouldn't you be talking about that in your life groups and your, your Bible studies? Shouldn't you think about it at least, at least once a day? Yeah. So here's, here's your sermon in a sentence. Here's your sermon in a sentence right here. The prophecies of Scripture were never meant to be hidden codes that help us figure out what's going to happen next. They were meant, they were written to make us ready. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be ready. So Matthew 24 is the start of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the week before Jesus is crucified. Some of you know that Jesus spent that week just outside Jerusalem, staying on top of the Mount of Olives with his friends in Bethany, his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And every morning he and the disciples would wake up and they'd walk down the, the gentle slope of the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley through the gates of Jerusalem and up onto the temple mount where, they would, where he would teach. And on one of those days, when he got done, his disciples, as they were walking out of this temple complex, and keep in mind, the, the temple was like nothing you and I can imagine today. And especially in the ancient world, this massive gleaming white building sitting on the highest point of the city in a desolate area. I mean, people would see it from miles around. So these disciples, being Jewish, they're so proud of their temple, justifiably so. And as they're walking out of the temple complex, they say, Lord, isn't this building magnificent? And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. It's all coming down, the whole thing. Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. So they've got a walk two miles ahead of them to walk back to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. It's mostly uphill. So they've got quite a while to sit with that. And when they get to their destination and Jesus sits down, here's what happens. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the important thing in understanding Matthew 24 and 25 is this. The disciples just asked Jesus a question that they thought was one question, but it's really two. 
They asked him, Lord, when is this stuff going to happen? When is the temple going to get destroyed? And what will be the signs of the end of the age? They thought that was one event. They knew that Ezekiel, the prophet, had said that someday there's going to be this massive temple way bigger than the one that Herod built. And they assumed that when Jesus said that the temple is going to be destroyed, well, God's not going to let that happen until the end. So Jesus is saying, we're going to see this happen. Jesus is saying that we're going to see the end. Lord, how do we know it's about to happen? Jesus knew what they didn't know. Jesus knew that in the year 70 AD, which is within the lifetime of most of those people, so 30, 40 years ahead, in the year 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus is going to sack Jerusalem, kill tens of thousands of people, just this brutal slaughter, and destroy the, the Jerusalem, uh, destroy the temple. And, and it's never been rebuilt. And Jesus knows they're going to live to see it. Most of them are going to be alive when it happens. He wants them to be ready. At the same time, he knows he's coming back someday. And he wants them to write down the instructions for us so we know how to be ready for that event. So as he's talking in chapters 24 and 25, he's, he's saying, here's how to be ready for both of those things. Here's how to be ready. And what does he say? Let me, let me walk you through some things. I'm not going to read the whole, both chapters, but I want you to see a couple of things, very, very, very important things. Verse 4 of chapter 24. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Do you hear what he's saying? He's literally saying, don't lose your head. Don't get hysterical. Don't pay too much attention to current events. Don't get caught up in, well, these two nations are about to go to war. What does that mean according to biblical prophecy? Well, there was just a tornado over there and there was an earthquake over there and I heard there's gonna be a flood here and well, what does this all mean according to the scriptures? Jesus said, if you, if you get like that, you're gonna be like the first time parents who go running off to the hospital the first time that the expectant mom feels a contraction and then they get promptly sent home. No, it's not even close, y'all. It's just starting. Don't get caught up in current events and how they apply to the Word of God. That's not what it means to be ready. Secondly, uh, verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, Jesus is saying, listen, people are going to get this wrong. People are going to speculate and they're going to be mistaken. False preachers will stand up and get people all stirred up and then nothing will come of it. Don't be like that. Jesus says, do you need a weatherman to tell you that it's lightning outside? Of course not. You see it. In the same way, you'll know when I'm back. The whole world will know it. Jesus isn't going to sneak back into earth. It's not going to be like his first coming where he came and no one showed up but a few shepherds. This time, everyone will see it. Every eye will see. You don't need to be able to predict it. It's going to happen. Then he says in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Now, this is astonishing. 
This is God in human flesh saying, even I don't know. Now, it's hard for us to understand how that works because again, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, fully God, fully man. And yet Philippians 2 tells us that when, when Jesus, when God the Son took on the form of a human being, that he emptied himself. And we don't know all that that means. We know it meant that he goes from being omnipotent, omniscient, and all-powerful to, to living in a, a weak, fallen human body like, like ours. But I think it also means he, he lost his ability to know all things. For, the, for that period of time, he was dependent on the Father and the Spirit to tell him what to do, what to know. And, and the Father said, you don't know when it's happening. I'm giving you plausible deniability. If Jesus, the Son of God, didn't know when it was going to happen, do you really think Brother Brill Cream, Brother, brother uh, Holy Right, you know, more righteous than you on TBN, do you really think he knows what he's talking about? I will tell you, he does not know what he's talking about. The guy that just wrote that book that you're so eager to buy because you want to know how all the current events apply to biblical prophecy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He is going to be wrong. Jesus says in verse 44, therefore you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay, you wanna hear my prediction about the end times? Here's my prediction. Here, you can take this to the bank. If you ever see a bunch of Christians standing on a hillside with their arms raised saying, okay, Lord, you're coming today, come take us. It's not happening that day. You ever hear a preacher or an author saying, okay, I predict it's going to happen this day. It's not happening then. It's not. It's happening at a time we do not expect. People are going to be commuting to work. People are going to be on the phone. People are going to be shaving. They're going to be sleeping. They're going to be doing their normal life stuff. And suddenly Jesus will arrive. And that is it. That is, that is the game over for this present life and the beginning of something new. So the question is not, how do we know when it's about to happen? You won't know when it's about to happen. I promise you, you won't know what it's about to happen. The question is, how do we get ready? Oh, by the way, let me just expound on that just a little bit. I have to. Stop trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Stop trying to figure out what the mark of the beast is, okay? It's not the vaccine, I can promise you. That, you know, stop, stop trying to figure out if this politician or that politician is the Antichrist or your ex-wife or whatever. Um, here's the thing. Whoever that person may be, and by the way, I don't know if the Antichrist is going to be a person. It might be a nation. It might be a, a, a concept. Who knows? But if it's a human being, you know what I know? As long as you're with Jesus, he wins. You're going to be okay. Well, but what if I get the mark of the beast on me? Do you think Jesus is going to say, I died for all your sins except that one? Oh, well, what if, what if the Antichrist is running for president and I vote for him? It'll be all right. Jesus is going to be king. Doesn't matter who you vote for. When that happens, you're going to be okay. But are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready for him to return? Now, what does ready mean? Because Jesus goes on and tells these four stories, and this is still part of the Olivet Discourse, part of his, here's how you get ready for my return. Let me summarize them very briefly for you. First, there's the, the story of the servant in charge. Uh, so a, a, a master goes away on a journey, and he leaves one servant, probably the one with the most seniority, says, okay, you're in charge while I'm gone. Make sure the other servants are taken care of, that they've got enough to eat, that everything is okay for them. And that servant says, you know, he's going to be gone a long time. This is my chance to just sort of be the man. 
And he starts slapping people around and being the big boss and not doing his work and going out and partying with his friends, figuring that I'll get it together before the boss comes home. But the boss comes home early and he hasn't done anything and things don't go well for that servant. Second story. It's the story of the 10 bridesmaids. Any of you who are young ladies, think about being 14, 15 years old. That's about the age women got married back then. Imagine you're 14, 15 years old. You haven't gotten married or engaged yet, but you're invited to be a bridesmaid. And this is a huge honor. You want to get this right. Your job is when the bridegroom shows up, you and your nine friends, you escort him into the tent where the feast is being held. And remember, we've already said the the wedding feast in in Jesus' stories always points to the the return of Christ and and the the new life. So in this story, there's these 10 young girls and they're waiting. They're waiting for the bridegroom to show up, but it takes longer than expected. Kind of like Jesus returning has taken longer than a lot of Christians thought. And they fall asleep because the sun goes down. And around midnight, they hear this cry, the bridegroom is here, the bridegroom is here. And they all wake up. And five of them thought to themselves before any of this happened, you know, what if it happens after sun goes down, we better have some oil in our lamps and they're ready. But five of them didn't have any oil because they didn't anticipate that at all. And they get shut out of the feast. There's the third story. This is a story about money. So it's, we call it the parable of the talents. But talent, a talent was in the ancient world, a, a, a measurement of money. In this story, uh, five servants are left with Well, yeah, one servant is left with five bags of money. Another servant has three bags of money and and a third has one bag of money. The the master says, okay, take care of this while I'm gone. Well, while the master's gone, the guy with five turns it into 10. The guy with three turns it into six. But the guy with one, he buries his in in a hole in the ground. And the master comes back, talks to the first two servants and says, you've done great with what little I left you with. Now I'm gonna give you great things. Now I can trust you with more. That's that idea of heavenly rewards. But that third servant, he says, you were too lazy. You were too, too fearful. You didn't take advantage of the opportunity I gave you. You're out. And then there's the fourth, fourth parable. And I want you to notice something. As opposed to the first three, Jesus himself is the main character in this parable, which makes you think maybe it's not so much a parable as a prediction. Let me just read part of it for you. Verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he looks at the goats on his left and he says, you didn't do any of these things. You passed by the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the person in prison, the one who's sick. You missed the opportunity to show me love. You're out. It's a terrifying parable. Now, what does it all mean for being ready? There's four things. 
four things I want to leave you with. Number one is the very most important. Be sure you're His. Be sure you're His. There's a, there's a passage of Scripture that I've heard all my life, probably a hundred times at least. But a few weeks ago, I read it again, and it hit me differently. It's Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And what hit me when I read that recently was, I'm pastor of a church, a bigger church than I ever thought I'd be the pastor of. And that's a lot of people that I'm responsible for. And, and I, God was, was speaking to my heart and saying, have you helped them to be ready? They need to know. Just being a member of your church, just coming on Sundays, that doesn't mean they're ready. That doesn't mean they belong to me. See, here's the thing. I know a lot of you pretty well, and I know almost all of you a little bit. I don't know anybody here who I would look at and say, oh, you're in trouble, buddy. Now, everybody I know in this church seems completely sincere in their faith, and I don't doubt any of you. But I also know the math. And when Jesus says, many will say to me, in a church where any given month there's about a thousand more or less people who sit in the pews one Sunday or another, there's going to be some people who stand before Jesus on Judgment Day and realize to their shock and horror, you know, I never really, I never really made him my Savior. And the danger of me saying this is that somebody's going to leave here today who's a child of God and I'm going to make them doubt their salvation. And that's the last thing in the world I want to do. And the truth is oftentimes it's the wrong people who take this to heart. So if right now you're hearing me say this and your thought is, yeah, I'm not a very good person. I've still got lots of sin in my life. So maybe I'm not really saved. This is not for you. Because being aware of your sinfulness and you're aware of your need for a savior, that's a sign you're saved. If I ask you, what is your testimony? And you tell me a rescue story that, man, I was so lost and I'm, I'm so messed up. And so I cry out to God and I, I trust in him because I know Jesus died on the cross for people just like me. You are saved and you always will be. And even if you feel unworthy, that's just a confirmation. You need his grace like we all do. On the other hand, if I ask you your, your testimony and you give me a resume instead of a rescue story, and it's, yeah, I was baptized when I was this age and I went through confirmation or I, I joined this church or I've taught Sunday school or I, I've worked with teenagers or I've served in the nursery or I've tithed or I've memorized scripture or I've, I've cast out demons. Don't give me a resume. A resume won't do you any good on judgment day. See, if you don't have a rescue story, then come see me. As soon as church is over, we're... I'm going to be standing in the next steps area right across the sanctuary, right across the atrium. I would love to follow up with you and help you know that you're saved. And if you don't want to talk to me, that's okay. I'm not the one that saves you. If you're at home watching online, all you got to do is just say to the Lord, Lord, I am broken and I need you to make me whole. I am lost and I need you to find me and save me. And you will be. It's not hard. It's free. But be sure that you're his. Secondly, to be ready, do your job. And you see, salvation's free. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, 
by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the free gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Most of us have heard that. But do you know the next verse? My favorite verse in the Bible, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time for us to do. In other words, the day you got saved, you got a job title. You got a mission. You're saved for free. It's not like when you get to heaven, when you get to the judgment seat, Jesus is going to say, okay, I gave you 19 things to do and you did 17, so you're out. That's not what this is about. But you, you and I want to stand before him on our judgment and say, Lord, I did what you put me on earth to do. Because you saved me and I was so grateful, I did the things you put me on earth to do. My question is, do you know what you're here to do? And all those parables, everybody in those parables has one job to do. Make sure the servants get fed take care of my money, escort the bridegroom in, care for the least of these. What is your job? What are you here to do? See, if some of you could stand up and say, my calling, my ministry calling is to teach the word in small group Bible studies, or my calling is to work with teenagers, or my calling is to work in the nursery, or my calling is to to love on senior adults, or whatever God has placed into your heart to do. But some of you don't know. Some of you just You go to church, you do your best, but you don't really have a purpose. You just haven't found it yet. And my advice to you is pray and say, Lord, I want to do what I've been put here to do. Now show me who to invest in. Because whatever your mission, whatever your ministry is, people are at the center of it. Jesus died for people. He didn't die for institutions. He didn't die for budgets. He didn't die for buildings. He died for people. So just start loving the people God's brought into your life and you'll find your mission. Number three, be compassionate. In that story of the sheep and the goats, what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? It's compassion. One group has compassion, the other one doesn't. See, in our church, there are people who do compassion ministries. There are people who visit prisons. There are people who uh, are there whenever somebody in their life group has surgery or is in the hospital, they're there the first thing. Uh, there are people in this, in this congregation who work with foster kids and others who mentor kids in local schools and others who've adopted teachers. And, and there are people in this church that will, will go and sit with someone whose loved one has dementia so they can go and, and spend a couple of hours apiece. And we look at people like that and we say, okay, that's a super Christian. That's, that's extra credit in heaven. And Jesus is like, no, that's the normal Christian life. That's the way all of us should be living. So... You want to stand before the Lord someday and say, you came and rescued me when I was nothing. And as a result, I learned to love people who felt like nothing. And I know, I know there, there are excuses. There are people who would say, yeah, but, but I don't want to be taken advantage of. And the truth is, the more compassionate you are, the greater chance that's going to happen. But wouldn't you rather err on the side of that? And by the way, the Lord can give you wisdom If you trust in him, he'll give you wisdom to know when you're being taken for a ride and when there's a a legitimate need. And others would say, well, but I'm really, really busy. And and the Lord is like, I ran the universe. And and I, I left that to come die for you. Don't tell me about being too busy. And others would say, well, I'm just not a very, uh, a kind-hearted person by nature. I'm more your black and white, tell the truth kind of person. If you want to kick in the rear, I'm here for it. I'm not here to give you a pat on the back. And that's fine. And God can definitely use that personality type as we're going to see when we talk about John the Baptist. 
But don't be proud of not being compassionate. There's a lot of Christians I know who, they brag about that. I'm a tough guy. Jesus is strong and he's tender. Be both. And if you're not that person by nature, his Holy Spirit is there to change you into that person. Go to him and say, Lord, I need for you to make my heart tender, for make, my, make my heart soft, to, to teach me to weep for those who weep and to love those who are hurting and to feel what they feel and to be there for them the way you were there for me. And finally, number four, live with urgency. See, there's, there's not much we do with urgency these days that's important. The things we're urgent about tend to be lesser things. Like, for instance, right now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, right now, I bet there's uh, some people in this room that know exactly what time it is because you just checked your watch. Now, why? Well, because we got to beat the Methodists to Lubies, right? I mean, we, hey, we got stuff to do. You know, I, 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 I got to get there. I got to eat. I got to, and then we got to watch the Texans lose. I mean, it's, it's, we got a whole agenda on Sunday mornings. We're urgent about these things. But if we knew that Jesus was coming back this week, wouldn't it change the way we lived? Wouldn't it change our priorities? Wouldn't you have some conversations you otherwise wouldn't have? Maybe call that person up and say, listen, I'm, I'm sorry for that thing I said. Maybe call that other person up and say, listen, I've been praying for you for years that you would come to know Christ and I've never actually said that to you. I just want you to know that's my desire for you. And if you have any questions, let me know. I mean, you'd have these conversations because you know that the time is coming very soon where you can't have those conversations anymore. You'd pray differently. You'd, you'd structure your time differently. Shouldn't we live with that sort of urgency since we don't know when he's coming? I mean, unless we don't believe him, I don't think anybody would say that. Shouldn't we live with greater urgency? So, so let me just apply that real quickly. If a while ago when I talked about be sure that you're his, if you said, yeah, I'm not positive, no way. Well, here's what I can tell you for sure. Right now is the only time you know that you have to make that right. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have next Sunday. You may not have after you've thought about it a while. I'm not trying to be manipulative. I'm really not. But now's the time to get that right. If, if you don't know what your job is in the kingdom of God and, and you just sort of feel aimless and rootless, now's the time to just come to him and say, Lord, it's false humility to say, I'm no good. I know that you created me for good things and I'm not doing those things now. So show me what to do. Show me who to love. Show me who to invest in. Live with a sense of urgency. I want to do some things that I can show you when I stand before you in judgment and say, this is my small way of saying thank you. If you're not a compassionate person, why not get a sense of urgency about that? Ah, maybe someday I'll, you know, when I'm, a, when I'm a grandma or grandpa, I'm sure I'll be tenderhearted then. No, now come to him and say, Lord, I'm tired of being uh, someone who doesn't care. Change my heart. Get a sense of urgency. See, all I can say, the only way I can close this that's appropriate is just to say, you cannot read chapters 24 and 25 and walk away and say, yeah, that was interesting. Every single one of us has something to do. And only you and the Holy Spirit know what it is.